And you can grab your Bibles, and we are going to jump into the book of John this morning. Uh, We've been studying through 1 Peter. We're going to take a brief break this week, special week, uh, much to my shame as a preacher. Um, Often Palm Sunday can come and go with not much more than just kind of a fleeting thought on Sunday morning. So I was determined this year to preach a Palm Sunday message and uh, just to feel better about myself, quite honestly. No, because the preparatory moment, right? It's a, it really is a preparatory moment for the rest of the week and for the week that we know a little bit more famously as a, week of, a weekend of celebration and the resurrection of Jesus. And so I'm excited to, to get into this with you this morning. And we're going to be in John chapter 12. Um, it's one of the four accounts of the what's become known as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week. Uh, back in 2016, there were two um, parades in the United States due to athletic achievements. So one was for the Chicago Cubs, uh, World Series winners, those of you Chicago fans, baseball fans. I don't know if you have any idea how many people were thought to have been present, but numbers account, this is debatable, somewhere around 5 million people came out in Chicago. You can find pictures online. There's some debate on whether or not it was actually 5 million, but to be sure, there were a whole lot of people who came out to celebrate the Chicago Cubs winning the World Series. I read one brief article that talked about people climbing up in trees and on telephone poles just to see the caravan of buses and players coming down. There's confetti everywhere. I'm sure the cleanup probably cost millions of dollars by itself. So you have that event in 2016. And then across the country, same year, there was a little bit more of of an obscure sort of parade by this one guy from Cleveland, Ohio, in Provo, Utah, because the Cleveland Cavaliers won the NBA championship, he wanted to throw his own parade. And it was pretty much him and his family kind of going in their pickup truck throughout the city, touting the greatness of the Cleveland Cavaliers. And so they stand in real stark contrast to one another. And people would look at his parade, and you can find it online too if you really want to spend the time to do that. It's probably a waste of your time. But they'd look at his parade and be like, you know what? Um, this parade is ridiculous. Like, it's quite honestly the silliest thing I've ever seen. And there's something in the, the ridiculous nature of his parade that echoes a little bit what happened when Jesus came into Jerusalem. Because in one moment, you had the, the victory march of Jesus, which in some ways it was, that would, would look to anyone who understands victory marches or parades would look to them as ridiculous, like wildly ridiculous, offensive almost. But at the same time, it was glorious. It was glorious and ridiculous, depending on who you were and your perspective of the moment and who Jesus was, it was glorious or it might have even been seen as ridiculous. So that's really the moment that we find ourselves in. Although the victory Jesus accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection is matchless in human history, and you could say is even the culminating moment of human history, yet his entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday wasn't filled with pomp and circumstance and majesty. It was humble and simple, and to many relatively unnoticed. But to those who knew who Jesus was and believed in the reason he came, to them it was a glorious moment of celebration. 
And so for us, and quite honestly in this room, there might be some who see this week and the worship of King Jesus as ridiculous. And I pray that in some ways you would be bumped to consider the claims of Jesus Christ this morning because his tomb is still empty and you have to answer to that in your life and I pray it would be in this life that you answer to that. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, this is just a moment where we get to kind of be ushered to be encouraged by the grace of God and to celebrate the victory of Jesus this week. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, as we kind of jump into John 12, let's kind of get our bearings just a little bit. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he's got a whole lot of followers. There's been a lot that's happened in his ministry, a lot of miracles uh, he has accomplished, and there's a lot of people following him. Uh, he's made enemies along the way, mostly of this self-righteous religious elite, those who didn't like the fact that other people were following him and not them. And so his ministry in that sense is really significant. And just days earlier from what we're about to read in a second, Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And later, Jesus visited a town called Bethany where Lazarus was, and he had dinner with the risen Lazarus and others. You can read that story just like, what a scene. This guy was dead. Jesus raised him from the dead. A little while later, he's sitting having dinner with him and his friends. And poor Lazarus, what happens is that the religious leaders want to kill him again because of the uprising of people wanting to follow Jesus. Pretty tough go for Lazarus over a couple-week period. But you have Jesus and Bethany eating dinner with the risen Lazarus. Page 845 in your Bibles, if you're using a, a chair Bible, the English version. While they're still in Bethany, it says this in chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So here we have the context of what we're about to get into, and we see in verse 12, and this is what we'll read. We'll read verses 12 through 19. God's word says this, as the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that is the Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So this moment is likely the Saturday before the Passover. And we'll get to the Passover here in just a second. The Jewish people are heading into a week filled with remembrance and anticipation. So in one sense, in the week of Passover, they look backward to the supernatural rescue of God when he rescued the people of Israel from captivity in Egypt. And so the Passover becomes a celebration of, of the blood of the lamb that was spilt and then put upon the doors of the, the Jewish people so that death would pass over them. 
and they would be rescued and come out of Egypt to be his people and to worship him in the wilderness. So that, that feast becomes the, the week or the celebration of Passover. So it's a backward look at what happened in Egypt, but it's also a forward-looking anticipation of the, the greater lamb that would come. There's, this, there's going to be a final rescue for the people of God. There's going to be an ultimate Messiah, a Savior who's going to come. So it's a forward-looking anticipation for that future day of ultimate and final rescue, which we'll see in a couple Old Testament passages that we just read, referred to in John's account of this moment. So central to the Passover feast was the lamb, the lamb that was slain on behalf of the family. The Jewish family had to actually have this lamb in their home for a few days before it was slain. If you don't know anything about the Old Testament, sacri- you know, we use the word slain like a lamb was slain as if it's normal. But as, as you read the Bible, the, there's a whole system in the Old Testament of, of sacrifices, animal sacrifices, and all of it basically pointed to the fact that sin has consequences. And the book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so all those little sacrifices along the way, the millions of animals slain over years, point to and they shadow a greater and ultimate sacrifice, namely the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And so Jewish historian Josephus, like he indicates that there was one census over the years that indicated some 256,500 lambs were slain in a single Passover. Can you imagine? And so quite literally, if you can can picture this, like in Jerusalem, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he quite literally is surrounded by lambs. Like they're, they're shepherded into the city in order to be sacrificed. What? What a paradox, right? So Jesus is surrounded by lambs. Every single one of them, every sound and what they look like is, is a picture of him, the ultimate lamb who has now come into Jerusalem to be sacrificed once for all for the forgiveness of God's people. Like what a picture. What irony is present in that. But hearing that Jesus was coming, verse 13, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. In the first century Jewish culture, as well as in Greco-Roman culture, the palm branch was a a symbol of victory. At just the right time, Jesus enters Jerusalem, and the statement is something like this, like, victory has arrived, and his name is Jesus. So they wave these branches, they lay them down at his feet. The three other gospel accounts indicate the crowds not only waved palm branches, but they laid them on the ground in front of Jesus along with their cloaks, a symbol of recognition and loyalty to this curious king who comes into Jerusalem. Now, there's, there's a whole host of things that happen when, when heroes come into cities, like whether it be sports stars or political or business people, um, they might be given a, a key to the city, right? They might have a street named after them in a city. Well, but these people who sought to honor Jesus, it doesn't seem like they had a whole lot to give. If you can picture it, like, it's a little bit like this, like, you are the king. All I have is a branch. All I have is my cloak. And just in this wonderful but kind of silent picture, Jesus accepts, like, the, the, the meager, humble offerings of common people as they lay their coats, their cloaks down 
as, a, as somewhat of a carpet for him to ride into town on. And what encouragement for broken people. If you think in your, your life and your heart, maybe there's part of you, it's like all I have is a cloak. All I have is this meager brokenness in my own life. And maybe what you need to hear this morning is Jesus' invitation, like lay it down. Like lay it down before him. And watch him accept it as a sacrifice of praise. Like bring your, bring your common, bring your simple devotion, a common palm branch, matched with faith, forms a victory banner like the tallest oak tree. The humble adoration of common people is accepted by this humble king of hope. Bring your life as a broken offering. Cast everything before him in recognition of his worthiness and declare your allegiance to him and him alone. The humble king of hope gladly receives the simple adoration of humble, common people. And all the humble, common people said, amen. Every single one of us. Praise be to God. He accepts the, the worship of common people. And they were, in addition to using palm branches and laying their cloaks down, they were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So those who came to celebrate and welcome the Messiah had God's word on their hearts. So this is where we get into the connection with Old Testament promises. So this particular statement comes from Psalm 118. So the week, so Holy Week for a Jewish person, there's a section of the book of Psalms, the longest book in the Bible, right in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 113 through 118. It's a section called the Hallel. And so they would literally recite these six Psalms every single day, word for word. They were like a, a chorus every day leading up to Passover. And the words of those psalms would be preparatory in their hearts for, to, to lead them to think forward on the coming of the Messiah. So what's happening right now is words that they had used in their private meditation, their public worship, now come out as songs of praise to the one that they believe fulfills everything that they've been thinking about. All the words they've recited. All the memorization of the Psalms. They look at Jesus and they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And page 479 in your Bibles, if you're using the, the chair Bibles, in Psalm 118, we'll have it up here, verses 25 and 26. It says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of of the Lord. In Psalm 118, the psalmist declares in desperation, save us, we pray, O Lord. And now the crowds yell this word, Hosanna. And Hosanna is, is a transliteration of the Hebrew phrase, save us now. Like, save us now. And so it's an addition of some consonants that kind of moves it to a place of being a Greek word. And they say, Hosanna. So it's really the same phrase used in Psalm 118. And so the masses look at Jesus and they say, save us now, God save now. And they look at him and they say, Hosanna, blessed is he, Jesus, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a, a declaration that Jesus is this promised rescuer. We need salvation now, please save us now. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the chorus of Hosanna rings out as a declaration that he is king. 
I think about this, and I think it's good for us to think about this this week, because we can go through this week, and we can get to next weekend, and haven't really even thought about Jesus. We haven't given much time to be in his word, but yet we still enjoy Resurrection Sunday and Good Friday. But what would it be like if there was some more preparation, there was more percolation in our hearts for the truth of God to swell and allow us to respond with praise in those moments where we can give voice to that, particularly on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Like their pers- all these people who gathered, their persistent meditation on this promise upon Jesus' arrival becomes the words for their public praise. Here's how I wrote it down. When we think about what we're doing, we're praising God. It's something of this, that the people of God declare the worth of God and the word of God. Like their minds are so captivated by the truth they've been reciting all week that when they see its fulfillment, they can't help but respond by declaring the word of God. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They just read that earlier in the week, earlier in the day probably, reciting that truth. And now it's ascribed to King Jesus, the one who curiously rides into town on a donkey. And I think it's, I don't have to do much proving to you to re, for us to realize that our minds are overwhelmed by information, overwhelmed by the news, overwhelmed by life's troubles, like in a given day, we are just saturated with information. And there's so, regardless of what that is and the source of it, what happens is we begin to meditate on and recite certain things because our minds are just captivated by certain things. And they, they can be unto anxiety. They can be unto a number of things. But our minds are constantly flooded with information. So my encouragement is this week, this holy week, to invite you to join me in reading Psalm 113 through 118 every day to prepare your heart for next weekend. And just see what happens. See how the Lord uses it in your life to allow the truth of God inwardly, privately, to flood out in praise publicly when we gather together to sing praises to our risen Savior. But Jesus not only receives the triumphant pronouncement of the people as the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus also rides in on a donkey. Verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, a fear not, daughter of Zion, it's illusion or personification of Jerusalem or the people of God. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So the other gospel accounts give more detail about Jesus' direction to the disciples, how to find a donkey. Here's where it's going to be. You need to get it. I'm going to ride on it. And we can read this and be like, okay, like what's the, why the highlight of the donkey? Like what's significant? It's a little strange, but why, why is it that we should care about the fact that Jesus rode in on a donkey? Well, like countless other prophecies, promises foretold, this one in Zechariah, some 530 years before Jesus was even born, there's an Old Testament promise or prophecy given that the Messiah is going to do something in particular, and Zechariah, 530 years earlier, before Jesus was born, said that there was going to be this king who would come, the one who was the hope for God's people, and he was going to ride into town on a donkey. And so, Jesus fulfills that just like he did countless other prophecies. Page 748 in your Bible, if you want to look at it, it's up here as well. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having 
Salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is one of countless, the countless Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his life and ministry. And notably, Zechariah is written to God's people in a, in a moment where they need to be renewed in their zeal for worship without getting lost in the context of that book. There had been basically a pause of 18 years in the people of God restoring the temple, which is kind of the central place of worship. And Zechariah writes a letter to stir them to, to continue that work. And so as we read this promise, it's not just some obscure thing that we can kind of connect generally in our Bibles. Like this is meant to do the same thing, like to restore us to like a zeal in our worship. Like your king has come, like fear not. The Bible says that fear involves punishment. But if you're a Christian this morning, your punishment was fully satisfied by this king who rode into Jerusalem and became everything that you are, namely your brokenness and sin, just like mine, and went to the cross to bear our shame and our guilt and our punishment so that we could be free. So fear not. Worship, like he brings with him righteousness and salvation for those who trust in him. Leon Morris noted this about the donkey in particular. He says, the donkey was not normally used by a warlike person. It was the animal of a man of peace, a priest, a merchant, or the like. A donkey might also be used by a person of importance, but in connection with peaceable purposes. A conqueror would ride into the city on a war horse, or perhaps march in on foot at the head of his troops. The donkey speaks of peace. In Zechariah 9.10, Zechariah continues on. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, his people, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he, this king, shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> Jesus didn't ride in Jerusalem on a chariot. He rode in on a donkey. Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem on a war horse. Like he rode in on a donkey. Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem on, like with a battle bow or a sword in his hands, but on a donkey speaking peace to the nations. This reminds us a little bit of like the story of David and Goliath. Like David's approach to Goliath from a worldly standpoint was absolutely ridiculous, like foolish. But David and Goliath isn't firstly about how you can tackle your giants. Like it's not even primarily about that. It's about the picture that, that Jesus is the greater David. And in a way that is curious and ridiculous to the world, Jesus slays the giant, namely the giant of our condemnation and sin that left to ourselves will do nothing but condemn us. And Jesus rides in on a donkey, not dressed in battle attire, but as a humble servant who will march all the way to his death. And through his death, he'll provide life. Through his death, his curious death, like those few stones that David had, he will slay the giant that is our death and our sin and our rebellion and all of our condemnation and what appears foolish and powerless to the world, God uses for his victory. Praise be to God for that. 
This humble king is foolish in the world's sight, powerless in their eyes, but this humble king possesses the authority and power to release his people from captivity. And here's one thing I'll just observe real quickly. We talk about this a fair amount as we talk about the gospel. The picture in the Bible is that left to ourselves, we are all captive, like the Israelites captive in slavery. And we are captive to a number of things, but maybe you could sum it up in saying that we're captive to, to sin and all of its consequences. That we're a slave to sin and self. And there's this, there's this profound picture that happens that when you trust in Jesus Christ and his work for you, you actually, you exchange being a prisoner of sin and self for being a prisoner of God himself in the greatest, most joyous sort of way. And here's what Zechariah continues to say in this same passage in the Old Testament. He says, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. He says, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you to double. Our identity apart from Jesus Christ is prisoners, prisoners of fear, guilt, and shame. For some of you, I don't have to convince you of that. Like you came in here this morning, like mindful of nothing but just shame, guilt, like overwhelmed by your failure. I just want to encourage you, like part of what you need to hear, central to what you need to hear this morning is Jesus is the only path, the only source that can move you from a place of being a prisoner to your fear and guilt and shame, to being a prisoner of hope. He's the only one that can give you those freeing chains. Jesus is the, the God of hope. He's the only one that can allow you to exchange being a prisoner of the waterless pit of sin and self to being a prisoner of hope. All of our vain pursuits, all of our rebellion against the reign of God, all of our determination to do what's right in our own eyes has made us prisoners in a waterless pit and notably with no ability to rescue ourselves. But through this humble king of hope, you can be made a prisoner of hope. Jesus' kingdom wasn't a political or military kingdom. He came on a donkey declaring peace. Peace to prisoners. And in doing so, he provided a different type of victory that was spiritual for those who humbly surrender to Jesus, for those who trust in him to save, and for any and all who look to him for rescue, there's this, get this, there's this invisible parade of triumph that happens for the people of God. I know it may sound a little bit weird. That's the picture in the Bible. Is that even the course of this life, we've talked about in 1 Peter, like this life is hard. There's difficulty in this life. It abounds every turn. There's pain and confusion because we still live in a broken world. So, so how do we process through the fact that we're more than conquerors, even though it seems like death and confusion and destruction still abounds? Well, there's, in this life, there's this silent parade of triumph that Jesus, even right now, leads his people in. That in this life, we, we're like a fragrance that speaks to the knowledge of God. And this is a picture in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, and Paul says it this way. He says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, always, in this life and in the life to come. 
So even when things are confusing and painful, there's a triumphal procession that we are walking in as the people of God in and through Jesus Christ. And through us, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. This invisible parade of triumph, Jesus leads you in. It's a parade of victory where all powers, authorities, and enemies to King Jesus are crushed under his feet as he walks in front of us. And we get to walk in his footsteps, crushing the same authorities, powers, and those that would resist his rightful rule. And to many, you know this, that we look foolish Trusting God in the midst of pain. Believing that we triumph even in the midst of trial. We're all worldly accounts. We look ridiculous for having trusted in God. And it takes faith for us to believe that there's a victory that we can't fully see now, but be sure that there will be a day where we will fully and finally see it. We'll fully and finally walk in it. We'll fully and finally smell it. The fragrance of the knowledge of God will no longer just be a, a smell to us. It'll be present before us because God himself will be our treasured prize. There in his presence we will be. But in every step we march in triumphal procession. Jesus wins. Jesus is alive. My enemies are vanquished. And I'll close with just a couple brief thoughts is that the humble king of hope and his humble earthly parade is the same one who in Deuteronomy 33 says, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. It's the, it's the profound, like supernatural picture. So Jesus, in a very real human body, 100% human, he rode on a physical donkey, clothed in no majesty that the world would pay much attention to him. And he's the same one who humbly walked to Calvary to take your punishment, who Deuteronomy 33 says, rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies and his majesty. The first time Jesus came, he rode on a humble donkey. But when he comes again, he'll ride on a white horse. The first time he came, his appearance lacked majesty. It wouldn't overwhelm any of our senses, but when he comes again, his glory will be unmatched, immeasurable, so much so that people will hide away from his presence who don't know him. Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday by an unimpressive crowd. In heaven, a multitude no one can number will adore him. In Revelation 7, verses 9 to 12, and I'll close with this. It says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, the Lamb who once was the humble King of hope, now adorned in glory, clothed in white robes with what? Palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice.
what will this what will this sound like salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped god saying amen Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That last word, amen, means let it be. Let it be true. And I pray that for us, like this week and every day of our lives, that it would be true of us that we look to Jesus, like as we survey God's word, we're confronted with this humble king of hope in his life, the glorious resurrected king who now is seated in glory, who will one day see fully what we know in part, will know in full the kingdom of God will be the kingdom of men and will no longer be confused by the pain of this world. For the people of God, that same humble king of hope, like he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more parting and no more sorrow and all the ache and pain of this life will be solved by this one who brings salvation, who brings righteousness to the people of God. There's a, a very simple note, the religious leaders, and I'll end with this as I maybe just commend anyone in this room, if you've never surrendered to Jesus, you recognize that even the religious leaders who were the most staunchly opposed to Jesus at the end of this moment, they basically said, this, there's no use. The whole world is going after him. And there's going to come a moment where you realize it's no use to resist Jesus. There's going to come a point where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it will either be in this life or it will be in the life to come. And my prayer for you is as long as God gives you a moment to breathe, that today would be the day you trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. This humble king of hope offers hope to you today that you can become a prisoner not to your own self and sin, but a prisoner to the God who made you to worship him. And that would be your greatest joy and treasure in this life and in the life to come. Let me pray. Jesus, uh, we marvel at your uh, incredible humility Your word says that in the beginning, you as the word were, were with God, that you were God. There's nothing that we see that has been created that wasn't created by you. That all things are from you and through you and to you. You deserve first place in everything, but yet, Lord, you humbled yourself. Jesus, you, you gave up the the rights, the privileges of being the king of the universe for a season that you might be stricken and afflicted and ultimately be sacrificed for us. As your people, for those of us who trusted in you, we, uh, we proclaim with joy in our hearts that you are the lamb of God who's taken away our sin. The salvation and glory and majesty and honor belong to you 
that you have brought to us by your own hands, your own works, salvation and righteousness. And so we never have to wonder if we're accepted in the sight of God. When our trust and our faith is in Jesus Christ alone, we can have the assurance of hope that we are prisoners of hope, never to be let by the hands of God. We thank you that what you started in us, that you promised to finish. And we bless you for that. Spirit of God, we thank you for revealing to us the glory of God in the face of the Son, of Jesus Christ. And I pray that our allegiance, that our worship, that our lives would be ordered in such a way as to please you. God, would you cause us as a church to be passionate about the things of God, that you would mute the things of this world into the distant background, that we love you more than we love the world. And I pray that you'd help us be passionate, just like those who saw Lazarus raised from the dead, continuing to give testimony to your power. I pray that we'd be a people dedicated to proclaiming your power to this world that desperately needs to know about the hope of Jesus and the life of Jesus within his people. God, if there's anyone in this room that's never surrendered to you, maybe they've, maybe they've watched countless times of preaching being given about Jesus. They've heard the message, um, but in their hardness of heart, they've never truly surrendered, and they know it well. God, would you break the chains of captivity to sin and self and make them a prisoner of hope, a prisoner of life, a prisoner of God, a prisoner of righteousness, a slave to the things of God. And we love you. Uh, we want to love you more. Would you prepare our hearts even this week to, to enter in with fullness of joy uh, next Friday and Sunday as we worship you together and as we marvel at the fact that Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, we have the promise of life as well. We love you. We sing this song as a response of praise. In Jesus' name, amen.